0: Hi, I'm Karlyn Appy, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to the channel. I just spoke with Daniel Margocci about his really beautiful new book, Commercial Visions, Science, Trade, and Visual Culture in the Dutch Golden Age. This came out with the University of Chicago Press just this year in 2014. Now, this is a book that simultaneously contributes to a number of different fields. So, if you're interested in the history of visual studies, in the history of early modern trade, in the history of Dutch Empire, in the history of science and circulation, this is a book that will be satisfying on all of those levels and as contributions to all of those fields. What it does is it proceeds through a number of case studies, each of which contributes meaningfully to the development of a series of arguments that I think cultivates collectively are, I think, quite successfully trying to change the way we think about the relationship between science and commerce, and also um, the role of visual culture within that larger frame in the early modern world. So, it's an extensive interview. I'll keep this introduction fairly brief, and just to say um, this is well worth reading if you are interested in any of these above themes. And it's actually also full of anecdotes and stories about some really fascinating figures. So, I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book, both because of the narrative and arguments uh, that emerge from the book, and also because of the quite beautiful images and illustrations that are included in the book, which are much more than simply illustrations. They actually form an important part of the argumentative work that at least some of the chapters are doing. So it was a pleasure to talk with Daniel about it, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Daniel Margocci about his new book, Commercial Visions. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Daniel, and thanks for making time to talk with me today about a really gorgeous, very thought-provoking, and very historiographically informed new book. I'm really looking forward to it. So, Daniel, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you come to the history of science and to the study of early modern science in the Netherlands in particular?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the short answer would be money, uh, which is <laughs> not usually, you know, what historians of science would say. But since my book is about money, I think it's a good introduction. I was actually doing a PhD in comparative literature at Stanford. Uh, Well, a long, long time ago. And uh, I was working on theories of intertextuality and the postmodern condition and and other very pressing issues. Uh, But I decided that I wanted to earn some extra money and I uh, signed up for a research assistantship (laughs) uh, to work with uh, Michael John Gorman, who was then at Stanford. He's now, I think, in Dublin, uh, directing the Science Museum over there. And, uh, he basically wanted to reconstruct the microscope of the 17th century Dutch, uh, natural historian, microscopist, uh, Antony van Leeuwenhoek. And uh, I happened to speak Dutch and he needed someone and we started working on the project. I was reading on, you know, trying to figure out how Leeuwenhoek constructed his microscope and we got through- you know, like working for around a month and a half, when we realized that already in the Bay Area, remember we are at Stanford, yeah, already in the Bay Area, there was a for- firm specializing in Hook replica microscopes. Hmm. So we decided not to go on. We 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 started working on the microscope of Robert Hook, uh, the archenemy of Isaac Newton, and uh, and then that project faded, and uh, and I decided that. You know, this was much more exciting uh, at that point in my life than uh, than what I was really working on on my PhD, so I decided to shift gears and start a PhD in the history of science instead. And, yeah.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! That's a great story. So this actually leads us really nicely into my next question. Um, So the book considers how the growth of global trade in the Dutch Golden Age stimulated entrepreneurial science, and so the book is really um, on on many levels about many different kinds of things, but at its heart is this notion of entrepreneurial science, and it considers the history of anatomy and natural history in this context as commercial practices. And there's a whole really wonderful history of kinds of representation and modes of visuality that go alongside this. And we'll talk about all of that in the moments to come. So Daniel, how did you come to this particular topic? What brought you to this focus um, for this project?
1: Uh, well, uh, there are biographical reasons and intellectual reasons. I I did my undergraduate degree in Holland, uh, in the Netherlands, in Utrecht. And uh, you know that's where i picked up dutch and and that's where i kind of fell in love with the the culture of the country and and i kept going back and and i think at one point people forced me to Go to the Rembrandt House, uh, the the museum uh, in the building where Rembrandt used to live, and there was a cabinet of curiosities. There, because Rembrandt owned a cabinet of curiosities uh, back in the day before he went bankrupt, and uh, uh, and and I was fascinated by it, and I was like, this is kind of really interesting. On the other hand, I really do not understand it. I mean. I kind of see that, you know, blowfish or puffer fish or crocodiles are exciting, but I couldn't really articulate why. So I was like, why not write a dissertation about it, a book about it, and then we'll see what happens.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so so this is how how I really got started with at the Rembrandt House. And then what sort of like what really started pressing me is just simply thinking, you know, issues of curiosity, how people in in, in Europe learned about nature that they knew very little about, how they learned about, you know, exotic plants and animals. It fascinated me. And frankly, how they learned about their own bodies, which, you know, is a very difficult thing to learn about, because normally you do not want to cut yourself up. I mean, we know that, Isaac Newton loved poking with his eye, but, you know, and Leeuwenhoek, you know, uh, was ready to test any kind of saliva or other bodily fluid, you know, he could produce. But other than that, you know, how do you really figure out what's inside you without harming yourself too much? And, you know, these were the issues, the intellectual issues that that led me to to start on this project.
0: Fantastic. So... This is a project that started out as a dissertation, and we were talking um, very briefly before we started recording about the transition from dissertation to book. And you mentioned um, in that part of the conversation that there actually wasn't much of a transformation from one form to the other. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? What was the transformation from dissertation to book like for you? And if there weren't major translations that needed to happen or transformations, is there anything in particular that you did at the stage of the dissertation that enabled this more fluid transfer from one medium to the other
1: right so so yes I- indeed in, in in a certain sense this book is not radically different from the dissertation it, except maybe for two chapters in, in one chapter I, I kind of made the argument broader and more sweeping it's the chapter on taxonomy mm-hmm. uh, where I simply had an idea that I can make it more exciting and then there is another chapter on forgery which in the dissertation frankly was here I have a funny story and I don't know <laughs> what to make of it and then I kind of managed to find an argument in the book for it and, and other than that I switched the conclusion and the introduction because one of my advisors Katie Park told me to do that and she was absolutely right and, 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 and other than that I think you know I think the major issue uh, when, when, when I got from dissertation to book is to make it readable
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, uh, this was at a period when when i had a young daughter so i wasn't really able to think anyhow so all i did was every morning i would go to the local cafe for around an hour and a half and two and try to make three pages read better and i think it makes a huge difference uh at least compared to the dissertation uh You know, simply, you know, just working on those damn sentences, one after the other, and and trying to sort of, like, foreground the argument, make sure that it's not hidden in paragraph 15, line 4, but kind of at the beginning of the chapter. And it took me a lot of work. Mm -hmm. The reason why the dissertation is not so different from the book is, I think, because I conceptualized the dissertation from the beginning, as a series of chapters, each of which makes a different argument. Mm -hmm. And and I think there are two kinds of dissertations. And one dissertation is that sort of like, I have one sweeping argument that takes up the whole book. Mm -hmm. And then sort of like I proceed chronologically, say, following my main character to make that argument or proceed simply in another matter. And there is the other dissertation where each article makes a slightly different point, and it kind of coheres in, the, in an argument. But if you already have a clear idea, I think at an early stage, you know, what each chapter actually wants to achieve, it makes much more, uh, it makes it much easier to, to to sort of keep that structure for the future.
0: I think that's right. And your practice of working a little bit every day on a few chapters, just from the perspective of the craft of writing is actually really inspiring and Kind of, as I'm listening to you talk about that I'm thinking you know all of us should at some point be doing that um, and that's I think uh, resulted in not only a very readable book but also um, quite a gorgeous book so for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to get their hands on a copy and I hope they do um, after listening to this if they haven't already it's also very beautifully illustrated and we'll we'll get to this because visual epistemology or epistemologies um, rather are very much at the heart of um a set of arguments that the book is making and one of the things i really love about it is not just that it's illustrated quite beautifully with these color plates, but also that the notes, um, the captions on each of those plates give us kind of reading notes for what to pay attention to in each of these images and how to relate them to one another and to um, parts of the argument in the book. So you actually are giving us um, kind of a method for reading and understanding and putting into dialogue these images rather than just giving us pretty pictures, um, which they are as well. So I really appreciated the way the book was built as well as how it reads. And- So the book begins, um, in chapter one with a trip. It begins with the extended stay of a baron in Amsterdam and uses this case to open up some of the major arguments in the book. And so I'll lay out some of these right at the beginning just to contextualize this for listeners, and then we'll dive in and talk about the chapters in detail. So the book argues that cabinets of curiosities, and you mentioned this um, early on in your comments already, were a primary site in your words of knowledge production in the early modern Netherlands. The book also argues that, again, as you put it, entrepreneurial rivalries, secrecy, and marketing strategies transformed what had been a kind of gift exchange system in the uh, Renaissance kind of or early modern Republic of Letters into a competitive marketplace. So as a result, trading companies and entrepreneurs directly contributed to transforming natural history and anatomy, and also transforming the concept of representation In the process. And so all of these are just part of the wealth of arguments that the book is making, and in doing so, really informing lots of different fields, not just the history of science or um, early modern history, although it does that as well. Okay, so here's where I want to kind of open up and start asking you some questions. Um, And I'm going to start big, right? Um, And this is one of the main points that you bring up in this first chapter. So in contrast to some studies, the book is going to argue against understanding visual culture in the in early modernity as one unified epistemology. So one of the things that we have to get straight right at the beginning is that you're arguing against a way of understanding early modern visual epistemology as one kind of thing, and are arguing for a pluralization of how we understand this. So epistemology is plurally understood. So can you start leading us into the the book by talking a little bit about that. How um, do we need to understand early modern visual epistemology in a plural sense, and why?
1: Right, absolutely. So, so at, at this very big level, indeed, you know, my argument is indeed that that we need to realize that in the early modern period. And frankly, you know, my guess is that in every period, but, you know, I can only make a claim for the early modern period. In the early modern period, uh, there was no agreement on how to make a picture or how one could represent correctly the human body, puffer fish, uh, plants, or whatever you want. Uh, And in fact, there was a proliferation of different techniques and behind these techniques of representation, such as anatomical preparations, wet in bottles or dry, just dry out specimens of body, uh, or uh, wax models, or paper prints, or color prints, or sculptures, or life class made of bronze. So all these different techniques, you know, coexisted. And all of these different techniques brought forward different philosophical, epistemological claims as to how the thing they were hoping to represent uh, looked like, worked like, was structured. And, 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 and in a certain sense, my argument is that there was just no consensus amongst early moderns, uh, you know, which way of representation, which technique was right. Uh, and, and even more generally, I think there was just no consensus about anything in early modern science. For the past 30 years, many scholars have been investigating the question of sort of like, how on earth it is possible that we have scientific consensus about certain issues, right? You know, this is an issue that you know, drives the arguments of Simon Schaffer and Stephen Shapin in Leviathan and the Airpyme. This is the issue, sort of that brings Mario Biagioli argue that where consensus for Galileo exists in Florentine Medici world because the Medici like what he is saying. And what I am trying to say is, frankly, consensus doesn't always emerge, and people just keep on arguing with each other forever. And we have to pay attention why they argue why they debate Uh, sometimes it's just because they hate each other sometimes because they love arguing and in my case it's because they have very important financial interests in the visual techniques that they are working with
0: that's right Thank you so much. Now, the second chapter actually brings us right into this financial context. This is a chapter that looks at the long distance trade of specimens in early modern natural history. Now, this trade was important and it was also very, very expensive. And chapter two looks at the ways that scientific practitioners developed an infrastructure for this trade and the consequences of that infrastructure for um, sort of ways of understanding natural history and anatomy. in particular, in this context. So sending even very small specimens over long distances in this period depended on having a way to identify them. And for listeners, um, this is before the development of a kind of accepted Linnaean binomial classification, as you as you mentioned in this chapter. So early modern encyclopedias of natural history in this context functioned as what you called kind of the equivalence of mail order catalogs. So since this is a fascinating concept on its own, can you bring us into what you take to be um, some of the most important arguments of this chapter by taking this notion of early modern encyclopedias as mail order catalogs and sort of talking about sort of what that means and, you know, what's important for us to understand about that?
1: Right, so so the chapter begins in St. Petersburg in the seventeen tens and twenties, uh where I have a character, Johann As Amman, uh, who is running the botanical garden in St. Petersburg And Amman is corresponding with his friends abroad. He himself is from Switzerland. You know, he has lived in Holland where he went to university. He then worked at Hans Sloan's collection in London, the collection that would become the British Museum. And he still has friends abroad. And the question he faces is, how can I make sure that my friends abroad understand which plant I want from them? And how can I understand what plants they want from me? And, you know, language is inadequate. You know, you cannot just say I want, uh, you know, let's say rosemary, because it means something different from them. Even today, I think British English and American English, when it comes to fish names, is incompatible totally mm-hmm. I think you know what you mean uh, you know by certain fish names in America means totally different things in Britain so the only thing they can do at this point before sort of like the establishment of linear taxonomy once for all which will not happen uh, for a very long time what they can do is turn to illustrated encyclopedias that describe a lot of Species. Mm-hmm. And what they say, I want the illustration pictured on page 55, figure number two. Do you have the plant that that image represents? And then your friend, as long as they have the same encyclopedia, will open the encyclopedia, look at figure two, read the corresponding entry, and will say, Oh, I have that in my garden. Here you go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so my argument is that basically what happens is that encyclopedias will be kind of like the mail-order catalog, you know, (laughs) saying, look, this is, you know, what we have, you know, this is how we can direct our trade. Importantly, I think what is interesting is these issues are so pressing that they actually change the shape of encyclopedias. In the 16th century, a botanical encyclopedia but actually an encyclopedia of zoology is one damn long entry after another. My favorite is Aldrovandi, who cannot shut up about cattle. You know, he writes 300 pages discussing how to castrate the bull properly because ancient authors disagree, and you know, you know, life just cannot go on until we figure out proper ways of castration, right? By the 17th century there is a new genre. This this genre of sort of like long histories doesn't quite die out, but there is a new genre of like short, to the point, morphological descriptions of plants and animals, especially small animals that you can trade with, insects and seashells, yeah? (laughs) Where the aim is really to figure out how to identify species and how to differentiate one species from another. And I think the emergence of of this phenomenon, this new taxonomical encyclopedia aimed at identification, is very much driven by the issue of people wanting to trade with these objects and, you know, wanting to make sure that they get what they order through international trade.
0: That's right. Thank you so much. And you even claim um, in this part of the book that commercial exchange brought about the development of taxonomical thought. So this is a pretty um, strong claim and I think a very compellingly made argument in this part of the chapter. So as you mentioned, um, seashells and plants and also insect specimens are exchanged much more often in this period than birds or large animals, quadrupeds, frankly, because they're so small and they're much cheaper to send, right? And you link these smaller, more easily sendable um, objects to Latour's concept of immutable mobile. So listeners who are interested in the relation of this to the work of Latour and to the work of immutable mobiles will have um, some really interesting things to look into in chapter two. Um, and also we'll get to larger uh, conversations about circulation more broadly, which is one of the major themes that emerges um, from the book as well uh, later on in our conversation. But I just want to mention, you actually suggest at the end of the chapter that these different patterns of circulation right between these tiny little things um, and the larger, more expensive things may have been a factor in the quite famous argument between Buffon and Linnaeus. Right. So this is actually these commercial patterns may actually inform how we understand some longstanding anatomical and natural history debates as well.
1: Right. Yes. I mean, I think it, that is a very right point, because frankly, you know, uh, sending a seashell back then, uh, you know, as long as you put it in bubble wrap or it's early modern equivalent, was relatively easy. Sending a giraffe or a hippo was pretty damn difficult. And, you know, there was one giraffe in Europe between 1400 and 1800 and maybe four stuffed hippos, maybe one live or two. <laughs> and and consequently I argue you know there was no reason why uh you wanted to develop taxonomical encyclopedias for these large animals that frankly no one has ever seen so you kind of kept on telling stories about them as Edrovand did about cattle, you know. You wrote length stories, Buffon wrote long stories about exotic animals, or less exotic, big animals, yeah. Uh, because they were interesting and you couldn't see them at home. Whereas with seashells and insects, if you were relatively wealthy, you could buy them, look at them yourself. So your issue was not so much learning about all their details, but just to identify them correctly so that you got the right specimen, indeed, yeah.
0: So the next chapter actually looks at the business of producing the kinds of encyclopedias that we learned about in chapter two, by looking at a key example, and this is a fascinating example. And this is the example of Albertus Seba's, uh, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing everything, so just (laughs) pronounce it correctly when we get to it, but Seba's thesaurus. Um, So this thesaurus was an overview of the personal collection that he had of Exotica. It was put out in four volumes and 400 plates, and it was published over 30 years between the 1730s and the 1760s, as you describe in this chapter. Now, the problem was, in the middle of all that, Seba died. Um, so what happened as a result of that is actually a really fascination, or fascinating window into notions of authorship, notions of forgery, and notions of originality as they're changing in this period. So can you take us into that? Sort of what happens when Seba dies? And, and what's important for us to understand about what happens in order to understand um, the larger sort of notion of originality and authorship that's emerging in this period.
1: Right. So, so, so Albert Seba is a fascinating figure. He, he emerges practically out of nowhere. He, he grows up in a small village uh, in Friesland on the Dutch-German border, uh, and he arrives in Amsterdam, And for reasons that are totally unclear, I think, to everyone... He becomes phenomenally rich uh, in a very short period of time in around fifteen years. he becomes one of the leading pharmacists uh, in Amsterdam on a very fashionable street uh, you know the street where he lives uh, is the straat and is still full of fashionable shops today. His pharmacy is gone uh, and and you know he is so rich that he is single handedly providing the Russian court with Drugs every year, you know medicinal drugs, which is which is a huge undertaking, and he pockets a lot of money for it, uh, so he becomes rich we don 't know how he amasses a huge collection of natural history, uh, a cabinet of curiosities, including a baby elephant in a bottle jar. Uh, and, and other lovely, lovely specimens, and he decides to write a huge book about it in which he kind of wants to immortalize uh, his collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the collection gets immortalized, but Seba gets mortalized in the process, <laughs> so to speak. He dies uh, after printing Volume 2, out of 4, and then what happens is everything breaks down. First of all, you have to sort out his inheritance, which is around 200,000 guilders, which, you know, is he's literally one of the, you know, he's on the Forbes 500 list of early modern Netherlands with that amount of money. And the heirs are fighting with each other for around 15 years. And once they sort out who gets what... They kind of are stuck uh, with this book, you know, volume two out of four. Mm -hmm. And they decide to continue the project for purely monetary reasons, I think. The simple fact is that the illustrations are ready for volumes three and four. Now, back in the day, illustrations are copper plates. And copper is expensive to acquire and it's expensive to engrave. Once you have those illustrations you have invested a lot of money into a project and all you need is a poor graduate student to write up the text or a poor professor. And what happens is they hire a couple of natural historians for peanuts compared to the price of what uh, the illustration costs, like 10% of the price of the illustrations uh, to write up the text. Mm-hmm. But they get kind of wary, you know, how shall we write up the text of this collection of natural history by a dead natural historian, of this collection that by the which we have already sold. Mm-hmm. So they decide that heirs of Seiba that the only way to do this is to pretend that the text is written by the original author Seibar, And they sign a contract with all the natural historians that they should be ghostwriters, that they should forge the text, and that they should write in the style of the late author Alberto Seba. And there, you know, begins a five-year saga of how the ghostwriters are trying to copy Seba's original style and how they manage, how they don't manage, and how they have to figure out ways to do that.
0: So that one of the really fascinating things happening in this chapter is that you're actually using the surviving correspondence of the postmortem editors to chart this process of completing the work. And so it seems like that correspondence must have been completely fascinating. I mean, can you talk a little bit about finding and using that source?
1: Right, absolutely. So, so it, it was a, in a sense a very easy find in the 1930s. Hendrik Engel, uh, who who was who is, I think, you know, uh, the founding figure of Dutch history of zoology, uh, found this correspondence. He made a note about its existence and never did anything about it. And and I just decided at one point while I was in the Netherlands to go and find this heap of letters and see what's in them and you know I was just leafing through it you know uh, page by page and this story emerged Uh, and it was really one of these Archival discoveries that you cannot quite, you know, expect to happen. All Engel wrote, yeah, there is correspondence of the, ed- between the editors of Seba's book, but he never mentioned the fact that, you know, these editors were trying to commit forgery. <laughs> and so, so I thought that's kind of interesting. And I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that in the 18th century, there is a demand for forging scientific authors because i think that's the bigger argument of the chapter which i didn't make in the dissertation only in the book because i was stupid stupid when i was young <laughs> is that uh that there must be something happening to science that makes it possible for people to think that it's a good idea to forge uh Thir- an author who has been that for 20, 25 years. You know, they don't want to produce an encyclopedia of natural history that is up to date. The forgery, the ghostwriting means that you have to write as if you were writing in the 1730s, not in the 1750s, which means you have to ignore... Scientific developments of the past twenty years, right? It's kind of like as if today you were gonna write about genomics uh, in the style of the nineteen eighties, and people thought it was cool, yeah. And and in in, in frankly, between seventeen thirty and seventeen fifty, there is the Linnean Revolution, and Seba's ghostwriters have to write as if the Linnean Revolution hadn't happened, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Why do you do that? You do it because now you have a figure, the cult figure of the scientific author. I argue in the chapter, right? You have Isaac Newton, who is super famous, and you have Albertus Seba, he's somewhat less famous. So it's more valuable to have an original text by a famous author, than to actually be scientifically up to date, you know, to the moment.
0: That's right. And so as a result, the chapter is not only charting this really fascinating story of Seba and giving us a window into this sort of history of forgery, um, but also giving us a sense of the way the conception of authorship and scientific authorship and its linkage to originality is bound up in this increasing commercialization that's shaping the sciences. So this is a really fascinating case study for the sort of emergence of a new notion of authorship and the imbrication of that notion with both um, originality or notions of originality and as a result marketability. So it's a really fascinating case that leads us into yet another really fascinating case. and Here's where we get to chapter four. This is injecting wax into body parts to preserve them. This is fire engines. This is all kinds of crazy, wonderful stuff. So let's get to chapter four. Now, chapter four looks at how Dutch anatomists invented a new method and propagated a new method for preserving dead bodies, preserving cadavers and parts of them in the 1650s by injecting wax into the circulatory system. Now, even though this was invented by one scholar, the major proponent of this and the person who's perhaps most famous of the, uh, for this is a man named, and again, I'm going to mispronounce this, but just correct me, Frederick Reusch? Is that- uh,
1: I think that, that's fairly okay. I think, yeah, Friedrich Reusch, no. Reusch yeah, Reusch. it's, you know... <laughs> These Dutch names are difficult to pronounce, I think, for everyone. Yeah.
0: I pronounce everything in New Jersey speak. So, <laughs> Frederick Royce, <Reusch>, we'll just, <laughs> just call yes,
1: him that. Right, yes. Now,
0: um, he, you know, his, the, or the the visual record that he left is absolutely fascinating. Um, and this is a really amazing moment for the history of this sort of different mode of. <laughs> like visual epistemology and ways of thinking about what a representation is and what it could be that the book charts. So let's get into it. So for listeners who are not familiar with his work, can you talk about this methodology of preserving cadavers and sort of how do Royce's printed works relate to these material objects or rather these sort of wax preserved objects that he's making um, out of these cadavers?
1: Right. So, Frederick Roche is, I think, one of the most fascinating figures of early modernity, and and he's not as famous as Isaac Newton, uh, but back in the day, he kind of was. Uh, the French Academy des Sciences, when right when when Newton dies elects uh, Reich as uh, the successor to, to, to Newton's seat as associate to, to, to the Académie des Sciences. So he was a really important anatomist who made uh, tremendously important anatomical discoveries. But he is most famous indeed for his method of preserving bodies and body parts. And I mean, it's he's really good at it, you know, this was 300 years ago. If you go to St. Petersburg, where around a thousand of his specimens still survive, you can see them for yourself and they look still pretty damn good, you know, mm-hmm. after 300 years. The way he did that was very much how Body, work, body Worlds works today, the, the, the mass exhibit. He, he did two things. One of them is he emptied the the dead body or body part uh, of blood, and then he melted wax, he colored it red so that it looks just like blood, and then injected this liquid wax or wax-like, you know, we don't really know what it is because he was secretive about it, his wax-like liquid into the circulatory system. The blood vessels, but also to to the lymphatic vessels, any kind of vessels, uh, so that the wax filled up these vessels and 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 kind of the deflated body uh, like a balloon sort of like sort of like became lively again, and now he preserved you know sometimes he didn 't sometimes he did sometimes he preserved. Than these wax-injected specimens in an alcohol-based solution in a bottle, and you know those specimens just preserve you know their original qualities up to this day, oftentimes, and they look really stunningly lifelike. And Roche made a lot of money out of it and became very famous for this technique. It's it's still stunning today to, to just look at those specimens and to realize how old they are and how lifelike they are. The standard anecdote is when Tsar Peter the Great sees uh, a preserved baby, uh, he kisses uh, that specimen because uh, he thinks that it's just asleep and it's a dead specimen, right? <laughs> uh, and it's probably a true story uh, or, or somewhat true because Peter visits Reich and Reich retells the story again and again it's, it's this amazing moment when you take art for reality yeah mm-hmm. and, and that's what's fascinating about it and and so my book is trying to figure out yeah how this technique emerges and how you can make money out of it. Because what is fascinating is that Roche is able to make money out of this invention. And, and, and I'm sure that, you know, nowadays, Body Worlds, you know, as an exhibition probably grosses quite an important significant amount to the people who produce it, right? You know, he, it's, you know, if he sells his collection to Peter the Great, the first collection for, you know, I think 15 or 20,000 guilders, uh, you know, which is the equivalent of the price of four or five houses in Amsterdam at a, at a good location. Yeah. It's a huge amount of money. And then, you know, you know, he sells his collection at age, uh, let me try to come in his late seventies, I think. And then he assembles another collection. Uh, He dies, uh, you know, when he's above 90. So in his 80s, he assembles another collection that he wants to sell for even more money uh, before his death. And, uh, you know, he dies, you know, just before the sale is performed. But his ears are going to sell it for a huge amount of money. And so what this chapter really traces is how you can make body parts marketable how you turn cadavers into commodities, right? And, and I mean, it's an ethically fraught issue today. Reich didn't care much about ethics back then, to be honest. Uh, uh, but it's, it's, it's even more important, well, not even more important, equally important, it's a question of how you create a market for dead bodies, and it seems that Rush really managed to do that
0: that's right and you actually sort of describe the printed works that he produces not as sort of standalone scientific publications but as catalogs right of potential preparations for per- for a purchase i think you call them sort of modes of virtual window shopping Right. So this, I mean, this becomes important for many reasons, but one of the reasons this becomes important is that here you're showing us a way of thinking about circulation and here, you know, not just circulation in terms of blood vessels, but really circulation of knowledge. And this is a a really important theme in current historiography of science, especially early modern science. So I want to just make sure we at least touch on it. Circulation not being about the open and free exchange of knowledge right here. Royce really had an interest in protecting that knowledge, and not just protecting and selling the preparations he's making, but also protecting his method and sort of distilling it to a recipe so that he could also sell that and make money out of that. Now, this is important um, for a couple of re- at least a couple of reasons. One of the ways that this is important is that it challenges how we think about circulation um, right now, and we're going to also come back to that, I'm sure. But also, it challenges and, and you make this point explicitly at the end of the chapter, how we think about the correlation between the rise of print culture and the emergence of a public sphere. So can you maybe speak to this last point? What's going on here in terms of sort of re-envisioning or revisiting the issue of the public sphere and its relation to print um, for you in this period?
1: Right. I mean, uh, it's it's indeed, It you know, my my chapter investigates here in, in, in a certain sense how Reusch uses his publications as advertisements for his collection. Uh, this is the period where the first sales catalogs for scientific instruments, uh, printed sale catalogs are ever produced and sent long distance from the Netherlands to customers and, and Roich does precisely the same thing with his collections. He, he produces short Museum catalogues, one could call them of, of his collection going sort of room by room, chest by chest in his, in his private museum saying this is in one chest. This is in the other chest. And in a certain sense, you know, his printed works are, are simply museum catalogues, just as the Metropolitan Museum of Art produces catalogues of, you know, its collection of Dutch paintings. But importantly, uh, they are not just museum catalogs, they are also sales catalogs saying, look, these are all the wonders I have in my museum. Now, is anyone interested in buying them? Because Roj ultimately wants to sell his collection and wants to make money out of it. Yeah? And in a certain sense, what is interesting, yeah, is these catalogs describe the specimens in the museum, you know, in in superlative terms, you know, a contemporary counted how many times uh, the Latin word mirabile, wonderful, is used in these museum catalogs and it runs up to a hundred, you know. Reishi says, I have here a wonderful specimen of a wonderful ear that is wonderfully prepared and it would be wonderful if you could buy it for a wonderful amount of money. And, and, and so, so what happens, yeah, is in these museum catalogues, you get descriptions of the specimens and no description of how these specimens are made. No guarantee, you know, that, you know, they are, you know, representing reality as it really is because Roche is the monopoly owner of this secret. And he's afraid that if others will steal his secret, he will not be the monopoly producer of sexy cadavers, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, he's not going to write scientific treatises with a description of his sort of like laboratory methods, you know, Mm -hmm. as, you know, experimental reports in this period sometimes do. He's going to say, this is what I produced, it's really cool, buy it, but I'm not telling you how I produced these really cool things. Mm-hmm. So in a certain sense, what you think, you know, this technique reveals to us about the public sphere, yeah, is the notion, you know, that the circulation of print, the circulation of publications, which really explodes in the 17th, 18th centuries, yeah, doesn't necessarily lead to openness and the public and the publicization of knowledge, right? It results rather in the advertising of private knowledges that you can then buy privately from one person to another without making them publicly in a financial transaction. Roish will sell his product method to the Russians are Peter the Great, but he will make sure that the Russians are not going to make it public. There is a close in the sale, you know, saying, you know, you can have my secret, but don't share it with others. And I think much of 18th century science works in a very similar way, you know, where people say, you know, using print, you know, we have wonderful things, come and buy it from us. The explosion of print is not just about the explosion of information exchange, it's the explosion of advertising materials. Open a medical journal today, you know, there are scientific articles, you know, on, uh, you know, recent experiments which contribute to, to public knowledge and half the issue is filled with the advertisements of medical providers, insurance companies, drug companies, because they want to sell you information, you know, drugs, etc. without necessarily making public every step of their production process. So I think even today, you know, oftentimes, you know, the public exchange of information is coupled with, you know, advertisement.
0: Now there's, speaking of really cool things, and um, we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this, but there is a really cool story about a fire engine In that chapter of the book, do you want to just maybe kind of briefly talk about what's going on with this fire engine story so that we can tantalize listeners and they'll want to read chapter four of the book?
1: Right so The fire Engine is really exciting. Uh, uh it basically uh you know tells the same story about how you advertise your products without telling uh, anyone how you produce them. And the 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 main character of 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 that episode is Jan van der Heyden, his brother. Now Jan van der Heyden is one of the coolest painters painters of the late 17th century. He produces cityscapes that are wonderful. He pictures, you know, a cabinet he, He's really a very, very high-quality painter in the decades after Rembrandt. He is also uh, the person who invents public lighting, uh, street lamps in Amsterdam, and who invents a new way of making fire engines. And what he does is he produces wonderfully illustrated description of these fire engines, He's a visual artist, a really good painter. So imagine, you know, you know, he makes paintings of fires and how they are extinguished with his fire engines. <laughs> and he describes, you know, how his fire engines extinguish the fire, fires by, you know, giving you dramatic stories of burns, you know, uh, fires in Amsterdam. And then he comes to his last chapter and says, well, I wanted to tell you how my fire engine works but I'm afraid that others will then copy my idea and create less high-quality fire engines. So this chapter I'm not going to print, you know, and he is stopping right there, Uh, which is, again, a classic case of, you know, I'm going to sell you, I'm going to try to sell you my fire engines, but I'm not telling you how they work, you know. You can judge by the effect, but you cannot figure out how it works, so you have to buy it from me. Uh, And it works. Uh, The Russians and the English start buying fire engines from him pretty shortly.
2: Thank
0: you so much. And there's a really cool description of this story in chapter four. Now, there's a whole chapter that we won't have a chance to talk much about, but I just want to mention it and mark it for listeners because it does extend this story of Royce and his preparations. So chapter five, extends again the discussion of Roche and his cadaver preparations by looking at what's going on in the larger context of a debate about representations so the visual epistemology of this period is going to be something that's familiar to at least historians of science as a major issue here because we have um, this you know kind of an emergence of a body of literature in the re- in the last um, 10 20 years that looks specifically at things like visual atlases and other kinds of visual epistemology in the context of um, changing notions of scientific objectivity. So this chapter contributes to that series of debates as well as others by looking at a debate between Reusch and his competitor or a competitor who really, you know, there's clearly no love lost between these two guys. Um, This is Bidlu on the one hand and Reusch on the other. And you talk about the disagreements between the two in terms of whether paper um, is the most accurate and reliable medium for representing uh, built structures of the anatomy or whether um, preparations like Reusch are. And it sort of takes us into this debate and really, among other things, emphasizes the importance of a plurality of opinions about what constitutes reliable um, visual representation as a way of getting at this sort of larger point that we began our conversation with about visual epistemologies, plural, characterizing the way images are attended to in the scientific culture of the period. Now, this brings us into chapter six, which is a really amazing, I think, chapter on the invention of mezzotint, um, and that is color printing, mechanically reproducible color printing specifically. So to bring us into this chapter, can you explain first, you know, what's mezzotint and, and what's the big deal about this technology so that we can then go from there to understand what's conceptually important about this within the larger frame of the book's arguments?
1: All right. Yeah. So 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 basically, uh, what happens is for the first time, and I'm slightly exaggerating, but for the first time in the early 1700s, you have color printing that kind of works like color printing today, uh, mechanically, and. The reason why this technique emerges is the technique of mezzotints, uh, which is a slightly different printing technique from from traditional techniques of printing illustrations with woodcuts or engravings and etchings. And, and and the major difference is that mezzotints, you know, uh, I'm not going to go in detail how they are produced, but basically mezzotints are a way of treating the copper plate, uh, In such a way that you can represent tonal variation very, very well. So shadings, lightings, issues of issues of, you know, like. Slight changes uh you know in you know between sort of black and white, you know, grey, can be ve- very easily produced uh with mezzotints. And what happens is that in the early 18th century, a German guy in Amsterdam, Jacob Christopher LeBlanc, uh, realizes that if you use mezzotints, you can achieve illustrations in colors if you do the following simple trick. Remember, most prints in this period are black and white. You have one plate, you ink it with black ink, you press it against the paper, and then you have a black and white image. Now what mezzotints do, right, is now you have black and white and all shades of gray, 50 shades of gray in between, right? Mm -hmm. With color printing, what Leblon does He doesn't get one plate. He gets three plates. He inks one of them blue, one of them yellow, one of them red, right? And then he prints presses them against the same piece of paper so that blue, yellow, and red mix. And we know when you mix the three primaries, you can get all colors of the spectrum together. And because you can carefully control with the help of mezzotins, For the intensity of red, blue and yellow, indeed, you can very carefully, uh, you know, recreate the whole color spectrum so that parts of the image are bright green and others are bright orange. And you get these wonderful, really stunningly beautiful color prints at the beginning of the 18th century, which don't exist beforehand. Beforehand, you have bad color prints and you have amazing hand-colored illustrations. Now you have mechanically produced color prints that that look beautiful and importantly that are used to print uh, illustrations of anatomy and natural history.
0: Great. Now, one of the things that's so fascinating about this is that This um, artist, this printer, thought of printing as the application of a set of mathematical laws, the laws um, of which could be easily communicated. Okay, he didn't think about this in terms of tacit bodily knowledge. Now, because of this, because he thought these laws could be communicated so easily, he used trade secrets, as you describe in this chapter, and patents to protect. His invention. And you mention this and you talk about this as sort of a moment, an important step in turning scientific imaging techniques into intellectual property. So can you speak to that for us a little bit? In what ways is this an important turning point in how we understand intellectual property in this period?
1: Right. So so I think what is fascinating, yeah, is that LeBlanc is working with a uh, some very fine amateur mathematicians and natural historians in Amsterdam, and then later in London. And basically, uh, his circle, uh, which, uh, you know, includes Lambert and Carter, uh, uh, an important Dutch scientific figure, uh, this circle really believes That nature can be described with the help of mathematical laws. That artistic work can be described with the help of mathematical laws. That artisanal work can be described with the help of mathematical laws they are kind of inspired by the newtonian moment right newton has just discovered that you can you know you know the law of gravitation with which you can figure out how planetary motion works and they kind of think that they found equivalent laws to describe how beautiful artwork can be produced and they think that these laws are the laws of Pythagoras the ancient greek mathematician philosopher so they think we discovered the right laws of Pythagoras and therefore we will be the new newton and in the field of arts we will be the new raphael right
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so this is so far very simple right you know they just you know say you know or they they just say this as, as, as kind of like, you know, the new Newtonian moment, right? This is different, however, from artisans' understand themselves in the 16th and 17th centuries, as Pamela Smith has described in The Body of Artisan. Uh, artisans in the 16th and 17th centuries understand, you know, what they do as the product of bodily embodied tacit knowledge that is very difficult to codify. Leblon and his friends say, no, we can actually codify what we are doing and describe it in simple laws. And as a result, they realize as entrepreneurs that there is a problem. Now, if artistic knowledge is something that you learn by apprenticing for seven years with a Rembrandt, right? It cannot be stolen from you easily you know, the person who wants to copy your technique has to spend seven years with you learning day by day how to paint like a Rembrandt, right? And then they go away and become your competitor. But frankly, you know, it takes, you know, you know, some time. If this kind of knowledge can be reduced to a simple mathematical law, anyone can steal it if they know that mathematical law, right? So what happens is Leblanc thinks, you know, that this is, you know, his color printing is the result of applying his simple mathematical laws to color printing. And he's afraid that, you know, everyone in England, France, Netherlands will start stealing his technique and he will have a bunch of competitors. So what he does is he resorts to trade secrets and patents to protect his knowledge. And this is precisely the moment, the 18th century, where modern patent law emerges, which says, you know, modern patent law is based on the idea that your invention can be reduced to a patent description. And if you give that patent description to the state, then we will give you monopoly rights for seven or 21 or however many years. Mm-hmm. So, in a certain sense, what you have yeah is Leblanc's belief you know in you know in in the power of mathematical laws gets taken up also by the states who believe you know by by the French state you know who believe that you can reduce scientific knowledge into mathematical laws or at least to patent descriptions, yeah mm-hmm. and you get a bargain right that you give me this knowledge, and in response, you get monopoly rights for a certain period of time, right? Now, this is a story that is slightly different from what we normally tell about 18th century Enlightenment science, where we say that everyone wants to make their scientific knowledge public, right? It's the growth of public science, the growth of openness. And I say it's the growth of intellectual property. When people who begin to believe that science can be communicated, will not give it away for free, but will sell it to the state for monopoly rights, or will keep it as a trade secret, which is even more important in this period than, than, frankly, than patent rights. And they will keep it to themselves, and they will only sell this secret, as Rage did with his anatomical preparations, for a huge amount of money. So, so yes, there is a belief, you know, now in the 18th century, that science can be communicated but this is not you know a public good but it's a problem for private entrepreneurs rather Great.
0: So the, there's also a final chapter of the book that actually that I won't ask you to talk too much about um, purely because I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I want to just mention because this final chapter of the book, Peter the Great on a shopping spree, extends what you were just talking about and looks at the consequences of this way of understanding not just intellectual property rights, but also the way it is bound up in issues of representation and multiplicity and representation to reconsider some of the major themes that we use to think about and to understand the history of science and the history of early modern science in particular, including circulation. So you talk here about sort of understanding circulation in this context, again, in a plural context that um, sort of looks at simultaneous realms of circulation that are not about free exchange of knowledge necessarily, but also involve different levels of Uh, sort of commercial transaction and then the exchange of money. And you also suggest that we might, as a result of understanding this series of case studies, focus more on how scientific knowledge is debated, how it's commodified, and perhaps less on how it gets stabilized in this period. And so these are two of many important interventions that the book is making in the larger historiography of the field. And the final chapter, chapter seven, really um, sort of takes us into some of these interventions and opened up the, some of the major historiographical contributions of the work. So, Daniel, um, it's been wonderful to talk with you, and there are a million things that we could talk about that we haven't had a chance to talk about that are that just fill the book. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers?
1: Right. I mean, I think yeah you know the only thing I could mention is is in indeed you know Peter the great and uh, and, uh, and 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 in the introductory chapter the baron von Offenbach, in that 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 the book is really you know framed by two very rich travelers who come to amsterdam and who see the bustling scientific economy of the Netherlands with their own eyes. And as it happens, we have very extensive documentary records of both the trip of Peter the Great from Russia and this Frankfurt aristocrat Baron von Offenbach. And in a certain sense, these two figures, you know, help us get a picture of how things happened, you know, in the everyday practice of Uh, of life in Amsterdam how you sold scientific knowledge and how it was really a bustling commercial business to do science Uh, and and, and, you know picking two visitors you know who just go from one shop to another and go from one scientist to another uh, try to figure out what they have on sale and purchase it for a huge amount of money is, is really I think you know what drove me to write a book and that you know you know, fills me with most pleasure, you know, to, to think about is, you know, you know, how you get into a city, experience it with your own eyes and how great it is that we have descriptions from 300 years ago to tell us how, you know, tourism and uh, commercial tourism worked back then.
0: So Daniel, now that the book is out and congratulations on a really thought-provoking and also quite beautiful book, what's next for you? What projects are currently inspiring you?
1: Uh, Animals. Uh, I I like animals. Uh, The new book is, is a book on exotic animals in the early modern period, but maybe possibly quite probably going up to the 19th century to Darwin. Uh, And it's a very uh, uh, simple uh, project that wants to understand how European natural historians thought about animals in this period that they had never seen. Uh, We have a huge historiographical literature on the science of observation in the age of discoveries and beyond, how natural historians recorded nature that got to Amsterdam, that got to London, that got to Paris, and what conventions they used to picture, uh, you know, those specimens they had access to. And my book kind of complements this historiography by focusing on those animals that didn't make it to Europe, like camels that were present in Eastern Europe where the Turks were very prominent, the Ottoman Empire, but they didn't make it to Amsterdam or only on a few occasions on hippos, giraffes, orangutans and other big beasts that you had textual information about, but you could never observe them. And how do you picture animals that you have never seen is the big question of the book. And what I argue is that if you are a natural historian, you turn to creative artists, paint printers, printmakers, writers of fiction, and ask them, well, you are much better at imagining things that you cannot see than we are, because we just observe things. Tell us how things look that we cannot see. And so I'm basically tracing the influence of Artists like uh, Dürer, Rubens, uh, uh, Hans Baldung Green, and less famous printmakers such as Adrian Collard, and how they created imagined fictitious representations of camels, rhinoceroses, what have you, and how such illustrations then were taken up by natural historians who said, Well, we are not sure if you're exactly right. But this is the best guess we can have of how a camel, a hippo, a giraffe, or an orangutan might look like, and said, you know, as a result, you know, we will take this as the best what we can have, and we will print it in our encyclopedia. So it's in a way, a new way of introducing creativity and the powers of imaginations into scientific practice from Columbus to Darwin into, yeah, yeah.
0: That's fascinating. It's also kind of it sounds like an analogue of the way artists and paleontologists work together at museums today, right? Sort of reconstructing another um, context of animals that aren't directly observable anymore because of temporal constraints, if not geographic constraints, and sort of the kinds of imaginings visually and otherwise that emerge from that collaboration.
1: Right, precisely. I'm I'm still debating whether to 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 reach out and write a sort of like a short section of a chapter on dinosaurs or not but maybe yes yeah
0: well it's another fascinating study daniel so thank you so much for talking about this one best of luck on the next one And, and thanks it's really been a pleasure and the book is fantastic thank you you've been listening to new books in science technology and society
2: thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time